Hey everybody, thanks again for joining us for today's SCF Online. This is gonna be the last one of our Forward Together in Love uh, sermons, at least for many months, uh, maybe forever. So uh, one more time, let's read together. 1 Corinthians 13, the first five verses. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. Whenever you demand your own way, you will be irritable and you will keep records of being wronged. Another word for that is resentful. When you demand your own way, you will be irritable and you will be resentful, guaranteed. But love, on the other hand, gives people space. It doesn't try to control them. Last week, we spent uh, most of our time in the book of Job, and we were laying some of the background and some of the theological framework of why we have this tendency to want to control, to insist on our own way. And of course, like everything else, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. And so what we want to do today is we want to take what we talked about last week, and we want to try and illustrate it and... Um, uh, get more application oriented. And so if you're, if you're uh, with us today, but you didn't listen to last week, it might be helpful at some point to go back and check that out. I think it'll provide some helpful context for what we're talking about today. So let's begin. There's a principle of organizational management that I've learned over the years. It's a principle that says a lot about human nature. And the principle essentially says this. The people furthest removed from a decision are the ones who tend to be the most critical of it. The ones on the, uh, who are on the outside tend to be the most critical of the decision. They tend to think they know what they in fact do not know, but they're very confident that they know, uh, and they tend to have the harshest perspective. I think it's a principle of human nature. So here's an example. Let's say that it's the first week of June and it's game four of the Stanley Cup finals and the Toronto Maple Leafs are up three games to zero on the Montreal Canadiens and you somehow miraculously got tickets to watch game four live at the Scotiabank Arena in Toronto. You get to be on hand to see history made, to see the Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup for the first time since 1967 and uh, put Montreal Canadiens out four games to zero. Win, win. So it's game night and you're driving to Toronto and you're on the very busy 410 highway when all of a sudden the car in front of you slams on its brakes and you slam on your brakes too, but you bump into the car in front of you, not hard, but hard enough to do some slight damage and the car behind you bumps lightly into the rear of your car. You are car 19 of a 20 car chain reaction pileup. So this principle says, human nature says that 
you are going to tend to be much more judgmental and less compassionate and more confident about the way things happen than, say, the people who are in car number one. The people in car number one, they were the first ones to hit the brakes because in front of them, there was a rollover uh, that happened. And so uh, they're uh, in on the situation. They're insiders as to what happened. They saw what happened. And so the people in car number one, um, you know, they're able to cut through some of the ambiguity. They saw what happened. They're in on the situation. And so they're actually in a position to do something about it. They're not interested in judging the situation. They're insiders. They have a perspective that others don't. And so the people who are in car one and maybe also in car two, uh, they can see that this whole chain reaction was caused when a man uh, had what appeared to be a seizure uh, while he was driving and jerked the wheel and lost control of the vehicle and the vehicle rolled over. And uh, that's why car number one hit the brakes and that's why there's now this 20 car uh, pileup. And not only that, but there were two kids in the car with this man and, and as this car has rolled over and so now dad and kids are almost certainly injured. And the only thought of the people who are in cars one and two and maybe even in car three who are insiders to what went on, their only thought is how can I help with this situation? How can I help this man? How can we maybe even help save the life uh, of these uh, kids? Meanwhile, back in car 19, you're thinking, oh, who's the idiot? Probably somebody, uh, probably a tourist or somebody who's drunk or probably a teenager or, uh, you know, a, a drunk teenage tourist. That, they're the worst. And so in cars 4 through 20, you know, they're experiencing some degree of road rage. And back in car 19, you're thinking, oh, great. Well, now I got a dent in my bumper. I got a crack in my headlight and I'm going to miss the game. The people at the back are worried about dents and cracks and games and schedules. Meanwhile, the people who are up front, who are on the inside of the complexity of this situation, the only thing they're asking is, how can I help? It's part of human nature. It's part of our omniscience mechanism that we talked about last week. We think we know what in fact we do not know. Some people call this, uh, by another name, they call it the backseat driver syndrome. And uh, so stated differently, uh, the backseat driver syndrome says that those who aren't driving or who don't drive or can't drive or won't drive uh, are sometimes the expert on how you should drive, right? It's, uh, it's human nature. Think of it like, uh, like a bus, like a big coach uh, bus. The farther back in the bus that people sit, the more critical they are of the driver. Uh, it's true. At the back, you don't see the potholes and you don't see the traffic. And at the back, you, well, you don't see the, the path that the driver has to navigate through. And so it's easy to sit at the back and say, well, if I were driving, here's how I'd do it. I'd, I'd uh, go faster, I'd go slower, I'd go this route or whatever. They're, you know, sitting at the back, you're on the outside of the situation, not on the inside. And so if you don't collapse your omniscience mechanism, you act like you're on the inside and you're very confident of your views. Think about Moses. 
The whole nation of Israel throughout the whole Old Testament was like a backseat driver to Moses and to Joshua and to David, uh, all the leaders they had, really. Moses leads the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and they're out into the wilderness, and the people begin to say, hey, we know what's going on here, Moses. You've brought us out here to kill us. And they start talking to other people, and soon they're, soon they're creating an omniscience mechanism in a group environment, and that's a dangerous thing. And so people are talking with one another, saying, oh, you know, here's what's going on. Yahweh is out to kill us, and Moses is a bad leader. Yahweh's not really a good God. Moses doesn't know the first thing about leadership. And where is Moses anyway? Well, he just climbed up that mountain, and he left us. Oh, what a moron. Here's what we need to do. We need to, we need to get a golden calf here, stat, to protect us, because clearly Moses is asleep at the switch somewhere. Right? Backseat drivers who aren't on the inside, who don't know what Moses knows and what Joshua knows and what David knows as you uh, move through the Old Testament. They think they know, but they don't know. And consequently, a lot of destructive things take place. We also see this in the ministry of Jesus. You know, here comes this guy, this rabbi Jesus, and he's hanging out with uh, prostitutes and with tax collectors and drunkards and gluttons and all sorts of sinners. And so people who are looking on find, hmm, this is rather interesting. And, you know, I wonder what's going on with this rabbi Jesus guy and all these late night meetings with prostitutes, uh, you know, and, and man, this guy sure never misses a party. I wonder if he's a drunk. I bet he's a drunk. I wonder if he's a glutton. Oh, I bet he's a glutton. I wonder if he's having relationships with these women. And well, here he's hanging out with these tax collectors. I wonder if this Jesus is somehow in on the take. And they gossiped about that. You can actually read about that in Luke chapter 7. People gossiping about Jesus because they weren't on the inside. Now the disciples were there and they were on the inside. They had a front row seat. They could see what Jesus was doing. They could see the love of Jesus for these people. Um, the disciples uh, you know, were close enough to even see the awful complexity in the lives of the prostitutes, to see that life had somehow conspired on them to, to remove choices from them. And the disciples were close enough to, to really begin to get a vision of what the kingdom of God is really about. The disciples are not outsiders who are criticizing, they're insiders who are doing something about it. But the outsiders who are looking on from a distance, well, they look on the basis of appearances and they think they know what in fact they do not know and their omniscience mechanism kicks in and they've got all these harsh opinions. You know, some rabbi this guy is, he's hanging out with a bunch of prostitutes. Well, we need to, I, I'll tell you how we need to handle these prostitutes. We need to handle them my way, which is zero tolerance. And we need to come down harshly on them. And we need to come down harshly on the tax collectors. And we need to come down harshly on this Jesus who is enabling them. And he's just loving them and being compassionate to them. Well, that is compromising. And uh, this Jesus is a compromiser. He's probably some kind of a theological liberal right? You think you know what you don't know. Things look very different from the inside than they do from the outside. The people driving the bus know the issues. They see the potholes and they swerve. They see the speed bumps and they slow down. But from the back of the bus, it's like, oh man, this guy's a terrible driver. He doesn't know how to drive straight and he can't keep a consistent speed. 
When we're on the outside, it tends to be the case that our omniscience mechanism kicks in and we insist things go our way because we're so confident that we know what we in fact don't know. And if you're operating from a place of emptiness, like you're not living out of the fullness of who you are in Jesus Christ, if you're not walking in the fullness of love, well then your omniscience mechanism will operate largely unchecked and you will be irritable and you will be resentful because things don't always go your way, but you think they should go your way because you've got this privileged perspective on things and, and uh, you know what's best for people and you know what they ought to be doing, etc., etc. Well, in the Bible, we read that we are called to live in love. In fact, Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The NLT version says, live in love. As long as you live, love. There's no off switch. There's no snooze button. Live in love. Live out of the fullness of life and love that we get in Jesus Christ. And so having received from Jesus unsurpassable worth, we're now called to give unsurpassable worth to all others. And that means we give grace and space to people. We give space for God to work in people's lives. Space for God to work in their lives, maybe in a way that's a little bit different than he works in our lives. Maybe he works in their lives at a little different pace. Maybe it looks a little bit different than it does with us. So we give people space, we cut some slack. And if people invite us in uh, to be insiders in their lives, then maybe eventually we'll gain a little bit more wisdom as to how to help them steer if they ask us. But even there, it's not because we're trying to feed ourselves with, uh, you know, by being the one who's right. No, we want to ascribe worth. We want to ascribe love. We want to love people by helping them find what it is that God wants for them. Besides God, the only one who knows your life situation is you. You are the insider to your life situation, as well as others that I hope you've invited in on it. But me, as an outsider to your life, I don't see what the insiders see. As an outsider, uh, we don't see the complexity of your life. No one knows, for instance, the complexity and the difficulty of, uh, of the particular struggles in your marriage. Uh, marriages are incredibly complex things. There's always history, there's always a story, there's uh, baggage uh, for all of us. And so unless I have a front row to your life, how would I ever know where you're at? Now I could come up with some religious rules for you from a distance, but I don't know the complexity of your situation. Only God and you and those you've invited in on that situation know it. And so if I'm looking on from the outside, I've got to know what I don't know. And what I don't know is the complexity of your situation. So I can't insist that you do it my way. I can't uh, insist that you agree with me because I somehow know all the answers for you. No, you're the one driving the bus of your life, not me. So I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna ascribe worth to you. I'm gonna bless you. And I don't have any other opinions about it. I just ascribe worth to you. No one knows the 
For instance, the complications of your relationship with your kids or with your friends. You are on the inside. I'm on the outside, unless you invite me in and said that I could do that. So our job as outsiders, and this is all of our jobs as outsiders, is to know what we don't know and to not insist that we have the correct set of rules that's going to solve everybody's problems. Life is very, very complex. So unless I'm an insider to your life, the only thing I know for sure is that you are of unsurpassable worth. You are created in the image and likeness of God and you're worth Jesus giving his life for. And unless I'm an insider to your life, that's the only thing I know. And that's the only opinion that I can have. That's the only thing I know for sure. There's a lot I don't know and I've got to know that I don't know. And so this is, I think, so vital for us as uh, Sobel Christian Fellowship and for any church, really, if we're gonna be a fellowship that looks like Christ and smells like Jesus, the aroma of Jesus, the aroma of life, the aroma of agape love, which is what our culture is so hungry for and is searching for, well, then we've got to, it's absolutely vital that we collapse our omniscience mechanism. Too many churches are full of people who think they know what is best for everybody what everybody else should look like and what sins ought to be taken care of and in what order. And, you know, sometimes we think, uh, well, you know, the, the church has to look different from the world in this way, in this way, and in this way. And we think that way because we're really feeding our security because we want to be able to look at a glance and, and just know who the insiders and who the outsiders are, who's in the kingdom and who's not, as if it's important for us to know that. I would suggest to you that if you were on hand in the first century, uh, following the ministry of Jesus, you would not know who was in and who was out. You wouldn't know who was in the kingdom and who wasn't in the kingdom. He's got tax collectors, he's got prostitutes and gluttons and sinners following him around, and you might be inclined at a distance, at a glance, to say, well, clearly those people are not in the kingdom of God. And Jesus also had very religious people following him, very devout people. And you, uh, from a distance, at a glance, might be inclined to say, oh, those, those are definitely the ones who are in the kingdom of God. And Jesus actually turns that whole thing around. And he says to the religious crowd these words, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. In other words, you don't know. Collapse your omniscience mechanism. Don't insist that the crowd that is following Jesus has to look the way that you think a religious crowd ought to look because these uh, prostitutes and tax collectors, that's not a religious crowd, that's a Jesus crowd. And the two are very different from one another. You know, the older I get, the more convinced I am that we've got to give people space. And so I wanna try and get this point across today in what is maybe gonna be a bizarre way, but I hope it's gonna be an effective way and a memorable way. So what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna preach a very short, old-fashioned sermon on gluttony. And so if you, like me, are a little bit overweight, uh, you're gonna maybe be nervous for about five minutes, but hang in there, don't change the channel. Um, we're going we're gonna to end somewhere good, I promise you uh, that. So, so hang in there. So here we go, a short, old-fashioned sermon on gluttony. And I'll let you know when it's over, okay? So here we go. 
Gluttony is a frequently mentioned sin in the Bible. In fact, in the Jewish culture, you've got lust or uh, pornea, any kind of sexual sin, and you've got gluttony. Those were the two biggies in the Jewish uh, culture. In fact, the way that you could tell a person was not walking with God, that God wasn't in control of their life, was uh, they would eat too much food, more than they need, and engage in sex outside of marriage. Those were the two biggies uh, in the Jewish culture. And the Bible says we're to walk in freedom, not bondage. And in fact, Paul says in, in Galatians 5.1, he says these words, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So, old-fashioned sermon, if you can't control your food, then you're in bondage to food, so knock it off. The most frequently mentioned sin in the Bible is greed. Greed is simply a matter of craving more than you need. And the ancient Jews didn't limit that to just money or possessions. They also included food in that. So whenever you read about greed in the Bible, you can, all, uh, you can always include eating more than you need in that. You can always include food in that idea of greed. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 3, he uh, preaches specifically against people for whom their God is their stomach. They lived for food, and there are people like that. And friends, it's a sinful thing. Proverbs 28, 7 says, A companion of gluttons shames his father. Even the person who hangs out with a glutton is a shame to his parents. I guess that means Jesus' parents would be shamed. But anyway, that's the principle right here in the Bible. In fact, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 16, it tells you the reason why Sodom was destroyed. Yeah, that Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason Sodom is destroyed, this is Ezekiel 16:49. It says, they were overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They ate more than they needed and they didn't help the hungry. That's not the reason uh, that you thought of uh, for their destruction. So if you are eating more than you need and if there are people in this world eating less than they need, that is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. This Sin of gluttony is huge. It's a huge sin. And remember, this is an old-fashioned sermon, so we've got to come down on this, brothers and sisters. Uh, we've got to preach the word without compromise. And what makes this even more grave is that gluttony is such a huge social sin. I would suggest to you it's one of the biggest social sins. It's destroying our society. And according to Statistics Canada and the research done by the Public Health Agency of Canada, in 2020, 64% of Canadian adults over the age of 18 uh, were overweight or obese. 64%. This is a huge social problem, and it's a huge medical problem. And this is in a world where one-third of the world's population will go to bed tonight Hungry. This is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah right here in Canada. And Christian, old-fashioned sermon, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are defiling it when you eat more than you need. And I think I'm correct in this that uh, when I say that uh, more people die from diseases related to being overweight or obese than who die from smoking. And you know what? I remember churches back in the day made smoking the dividing line about who's in and who's out. And the Bible doesn't say a thing about smoking, but it sure does say a whole lot about gluttony and food. So, friends, uh, I'm going to suggest that we change the name of our church. Uh, 
We'll still call it SCF for branding purposes, but we're gonna change the word Sobel to another word that starts with S. So here's what our logo looks right now, um, Sobel Christian Fellowship. I'm gonna suggest that it becomes the skinny Christian Fellowship. So here, here's the old one, Sobel Christian Fellowship. Here's what I'm suggesting we change it to, skinny Christian Fellowship. And I, I believe that we should put scales at the front doors and that we should put a height charts on the wall so that when people come into the building, we can weigh them and we can tell how high they are and then we can calculate their body mass index. And you know, it's a church, so we wanna be gracious. We're gonna be lenient. We're gonna you know, let people away with a 2% body fat, right? But my goodness, brothers and sisters, we've got to crack down on this thing. Okay, I can't do it anymore. Old-fashioned sermon on gluttony is now uh, over. Why don't we do that? Why don't we put scales at the doors and charts on the walls? And why don't we come crashing down on this thing of obesity and overweightness? How come we never question the faith of an obese person? but we do question the faith of people with a number of other things. Well, here's why I think we do it. And I'm doing this to expose not only our omniscience mechanism, but, but how selective we are in how we use it. You know, if we, if we put in the scales and the height charts and you know, came you know, preaching hard on this thing of obesity and gluttony and so on, here's what would happen. Our church would be 64% smaller. Any legalist will tell you that if you're going to go after a sin, go after one that the majority of your people aren't guilty of, especially the big contributors. Go after a minority sin. And so there are churches, for instance, who uh, go after those who would place themselves somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. And according to the 2018 survey of safety in public spaces, approximately 4% of Canadians aged 15 and older said they were part of a sexual minority. In other words, 4% report having a sexual orientation other than heterosexual. Now, you might say, well, 4% is still too big a percentage to really come down on, so let's, um, let's extract out of that 4% a subset. Let's say, let's go after the transgender uh, portion of the LGBTQ uh, community. And so that same survey uh, says that, that uh, the number of Canadians who identify as transgender, this is in 2018, age 15 and over, is 0.24%. So maybe you would go after them, go after the transgender. You know, they probably don't contribute that much to church anyway. So go after a minority sin. And you know what? Friends, in all honesty, when it comes to being overweight, I would say here at SCF and in other evangelical churches that I'm familiar with, I think we've learned to say on this issue, you know what? We're all kind of in this together. At least 64% of us are. And even the other 34% who aren't overweight have learned to say, yeah, but you know what? I've got other stuff in my life. I've got greed or I don't give enough to the poor or there are times where I do pig out and I do binge eat and I don't pray enough and I don't love enough and sometimes I get hateful thoughts. So I'm not gonna be the first one to cast a stone at, at uh, people who are overweight, all right? Because we're all kind of in this together. We do this with this thing of gluttony and obesity and overweightness. My question is this, why don't we do that consistently? 
If any sin should be some kind of a line of demarcation between who's in and who's out, it should be weight, given the number of verses in Scripture about that, but we don't do that. When it comes to overweightness, especially obesity, we tend to have compassion because we, we know that while there are some people who just simply kind of let themselves go and who don't care, we do understand that on the whole, people who have food issues, the issue really isn't food. It's far more complex than that. And we tend to have compassion because we understand it's complex. And, you know, we, we also have compassion because we understand that our society discriminates against the obese. I've seen it. I've ridden in the economy class of, uh, of jet liners and even sat at the uh, Rogers Center in those little blue seats. And, and I've wondered, how do people who are like 450 pounds even fit in these seats? Our society typically doesn't accommodate the obese. But at church, we tend to. We tend to accommodate that. We understand that often people who are overweight or obese, well, there's something else going on. Like maybe they're self-medicating their pain with food or they're coping with stress with food or they're self-medicating their rejection or their trauma or their loneliness with food. There are women who've been sexually assaulted by men, and the women become obese as a defense mechanism to keep men away. They're not doing this in some kind of a calculated way. No, it's more of a fight or flight kind of thing, and because I can't fight, well then obesity becomes my flight option to self-protection. And so in the church, we generally acknowledge that, you know what, if you're gonna say something to somebody, about being overweight or obese, you really need to be on the inside of that person's life because it's a very, very complex thing. Not to mention the existence of medications and medical conditions and, and genetics that contribute to being overweight or obese. I once watched a, a TV show called My 600 Pound Life. I watched, I think, probably just the one episode. And in this episode, there was a woman who was very large, uh, over 600 pounds, given the name of the show. Um, and she ate really in uncontrollable fashion, uh, almost like every meal was, was going to be her last. And in the one scene, she's got two plates of spaghetti in front of her, and she's eating it. And the person who is kind of prompting the conversation asks her the question that every person who has no issue with food asks somebody, why do you do that? Why don't you just stop? You know, I don't do that. I can just stop. Why can't you? And she says with tears in her eyes, I don't know. I don't know why I do it. But I know that the only time I feel good in life is when I'm eating. And so this interviewer person says, you know, what's behind that? And she says, I don't know. But food is the only friend I have it never looks down on me, it never judges me, and it never cares how fat I get. So what should we do as a church with this woman? Should we come alongside this woman and preach an old-fashioned sermon and say, you know what, you're overweight, uh, the Bible doesn't like that? No, we would never think of doing that, or at least I hope we would never think of doing that. Because we'd simply be confirming what she already believes about herself. So when it comes to being overweight or obese, we tend to be more 
compassionate. But, you know, truthfully, biblically, being overweight misses the mark. It's not God's ideal. Being disciplined in all things is God's ideal. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And we do need to preach the Bible without compromise. We do need to do that. But in terms of how that applies, well, we've got to give people space because there are issues and complexities that we don't know a thing about. Now, if they invite us in, there may be a time where we, using the wisdom of love, can say, hey, can we have a conversation about this food control problem that you've got? Maybe, if we've been invited in. But as outsiders, you must give space. You must give grace and space. And we tend to do that on this particular issue. Because we know that it can't be easy living that life. And so we, we have compassion on them. I once was on staff at a church, um, not this church and not our concordant church, another church, where there was a woman who was obese, very obese, and um, I don't think she bathed all that often. It was probably very difficult because uh, there was an odor about her and people would make fun of her behind her back. And I'm ashamed to admit I was one of them. And one day this woman asked if I could go to her house and I said, yeah, I would. And I went. And it was difficult for me because in my heart, I had such arrogance and such judgment against her. And when I went to her house, it was as I imagined it would have been. It smelled. It was dirty. It was dark. She had the blinds down, the drapes closed. This woman knew clearly that she was obese. And she knew that people talked about her behind her back. She didn't know I was one of them, however. And she said to me with tears, I don't know why I can't control my food. I think it's just because my life is so screwed up and I use food as an escape. And I know God doesn't like this. I know he doesn't like me being like this. I, I know the Bible says things against gluttony. And then she asked me, will you help me? Will you help me with my eating? Will you help me with my weight? And I said, yeah, I will. I said, maybe, you know, if it's okay, we can maybe bring in uh, some women who've got time and expertise in this. But I said to her, for now, I think we should take, uh, I would encourage you to take the weight issue and the food issue and to put it on the back burner. You see, she'd told me some other things in the meantime. She'd told me that just two years before, she'd gone through a really a brutal and vicious divorce that she was still recovering from. She told me that she had some very crushing uh, financial challenges that she was dealing with. And even, even more than that, she told me she despised herself, that she loathed herself. She told me that, in fact, every morning when she got up, she had to find a reason not to end her life that day. And you know what? In that moment, my arrogant, judgmental heart broke for her. She despised herself. And so I encouraged her to focus, first of all, on who she was in Jesus and to get centered on that. Because only then could I see hope for change. You know, to try and lose weight to get worth likely wouldn't work. She likely wouldn't lose a pound. But even if she did, that's not the kind of worth that she was looking for because true and pure and full worth only comes from Jesus Christ and understanding who we are in him. And so our growth has to come out of that fullness. 
Now, you might say, Higginson, you really uh, compromise scripture in that situation because the Bible says, and you just rhyme off all these verses on gluttony, and you know, you should have come down hard on this sinful woman. Well, if I did that and just quoted all those verses on obesity, first of all, she would have known them all. Secondly, she would have agreed with them all. Thirdly, it would have just fed into her self-loathing. Maybe even would have been what it took to just push her to suicide. Maybe the next morning would have been the morning where she couldn't come up with a reason not to end her life that day. When you get on the inside, love sees things differently. And no matter how true or how right our opinions are, without love, they're worthless. Right? We've learned this in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul has said, without love, even if you're right, even if you're doctrinally accurate, without love, it's just irritating religious noise. In fact, it can be damaging. Preaching the truth without love can be damaging. And so as an outsider, you know, you can look at a life and you can think you know what you in fact don't know and you can bulldozer uh, that life over and you can, uh, you know, come with all your rules and apply them in unloving ways and it's damaging and it can actually lead people to suicide. And in the name of being godly and uncompromising, uh, you end up ending a life. You've got to be on the inside. This is, this is why small groups are so essential and why it's better to, uh, to sit in, in circles than in rows. I've told you before that when I was pastoring our daughter church in Kincardine, I became labeled by some in the religious community there as a pro-gay pastor. And this really began when I, along with some others from our church, set up a water station alongside the Pride Parade, which literally passed uh, like 10 feet from the front door of our ministry space. And so we passed out cold water to any who were, in, who were thirsty, uh, including people marching in the Pride Parade. And so I became known by some in the religious community as a pro-gay pastor, and I was criticized by some for it. Now, interestingly enough, my theology on this is very traditional, but we're called to love all people at all times, to love indiscriminately and without partiality, to love like God loves, like the sun shines and like the rain falls, to love everyone. Some people are gay, some people are obese, some have hidden lusts, some people are self-righteous, some people are greedy. Some people don't care about justice issues. Some people don't give enough to the poor. Some people don't serve others. We all miss the mark. And maybe some of you are thinking, okay, Higginson, here, here he goes, uh, compromising scripture, soft on scripture, starts with handing out water bottles and pretty soon uh, be using all the inclusive language of the liberal churches. Well, Higginson, we need to draw a line. We need to take a stand. This is wrong. It's damaging our society. Well, here's what I wonder. Why do you think we might be inclined to think like that about the homosexual issue, but not about the obesity issue? Is it because life on the LGBTQ spectrum is somehow less complex than the obesity issue? I would suggest to you, if anything, it is far, far more complex. 
Is it because the Bible talks so much more about homosexuality than it does about obesity? I would suggest to you that the Bible talks far more about obesity. Or could it simply be that 64% of people are overweight and only 4% are gay? But here's the thing. Jesus died for every one of us. Jesus ascribes worth to every single one of us. And when we walk in love, we can actually begin to make a difference in people's lives. When we walk in love, we can actually begin to change our world. And when we walk in love and when we get on the inside of a life, we can actually begin to change that person's life. So I've had a few comments, negative comments, about being pro-gay. But interestingly enough, you know, no one has ever been concerned that I'm pro-obesity. You've got to get on the inside of a life. Now, let's be clear. Uh, Let's not go without saying this is absolutely true. Anything that misses the mark is sin. Just like obesity and gluttony and lust and everything else. But truth applied in unloving ways is at best worthless, says Paul. Just an irritating religious noise. At worst, it's destructive and damaging. We're called to walk in love. If you're not an insider to someone's life, your job and your only job is to ascribe unsurpassable worth. That's it. Because that's all you know for sure. Now, if they invite you in, in love, and you talk with it, as you talk with it, you might actually come to see that the issue that you thought needed to be addressed isn't actually the first issue that needs to be addressed. In fact, I would suggest to you that for someone who is suicidal, gluttony is not the first issue to address. Maybe there's a time and a place and a space where you from the inside can speak to that issue, but we as outsiders can't impose on others that your life has to look exactly like mine. No, in love, we enter in at their invitation. We listen and learn how this situation is being driven. In love, we become more than simply a backseat driver and critic. As outsiders, our job is to wash their feet. As outsiders, our job is to ascribe unsurpassable worth to love indiscriminately and without partiality. As outsiders, our our job is is to love others like Jesus loved us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said, a new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you love one another. By this will all people know that you are my followers if you love one another. And so, Lord Jesus, would you help us, help us to move forward together in love. Amen.